the outsourcing element opened our eyes to possibilities, if I'm honest with you now. That really frees you up to do the recruiting, the bit that you enjoy, the sales, and that's a real reason to work for our business as well. And that's a real competitive advantage that I feel that we can bring. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I am delighted to be joined by Justin McGuire. This is Justin's second time on the show, uh, but I'll do a quick recap of his bio. Justin is the CEO and founder of MCG Talent, a talent consulting firm specializing in creative communications and marketing people across the Middle East and Asia. Justin spent seven years working for well-known creative agencies before jumping into recruitment, which he's done for the last 15 years. He's lived and worked across the UK, Europe, Central America, Singapore, and is now based from Dubai. Justin's run his own recruiting firm for 12 years, and uh, I'm really excited to have you back on the show. Justin, welcome. Thanks a lot, Mark. Hi. Good to be with you again. Fantastic. So um, it's it's hard to believe it's been almost two years since we last did this. It was November 2020. Uh, episode 42, for those who want to go back and um, revisit our previous conversation, but your business has changed dramatically since then, so we're definitely overdue for a catch-up. Um, and we should also give a shout-out to Helen McGuire, who has been on the show. That was episode 57, uh, and that episode was called Diversity as a Differentiator, How Recruiters Can Attract 70% More Diverse Talent. So... Um, I think you're using Helen's podcast setup this morning. I am. Yes, I've, I've borrowed my wife's microphone. Um, uh, so hopefully she didn't need to use it today because I shot out the house with it in my hand. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Hopefully uh, she won't need it. So look, um, Justin, let's pick up where we left off. Can you bring me up to speed on like the last couple of years, you know, the changes you've made and, and the current size and shape of your business and what you guys are doing? Sure. So, um, Mark, last last time we spoke, um, the world was in a quite a different place then. I was in, a, and I was physically in a different place then. I was actually living in Singapore, and um, and our business at the time was called DMCG Global, and we were um, we were part of a, a global network um, of about sort of fifty five recruiters, and um, and now obviously we're called MCG Talent. So we've left that that um, setup that we had, and. And moved on and done our own thing and become specialists, you know, really focused on becoming specialists for the Middle East and Asia in the Marcoms and tech world. So that's our, the world that we recruit in. And we are sort of experts within the Middle East and Asia. And we decided to, um, to leave the, the global um, group that we were part of just because I think during COVID, we really sort of understood the need for a niche where we were doing well and where people were leaning on us was that they wanted a, experts within the Middle East and Asia to guide and hold their hand and talk to them about what's going on in that, in that area that we knew so well. And we just thought, you know, rather than being part of a global offering, let's just button down on being experts within the bits that we know really well. And it served us well in COVID and it served us well ever since really. So um, since then, we've, um, I think when we, when we last spoke from a, a, a Middle East and Asia perspective, we had about headcount of about 12 and today we're sat around about 30 people um, and, and, and are growing still. Uh, so we brought eight people into the business last month and, and are looking to sort of bring two or three more over on this, this coming month as well. So 
it's the business name has changed um and but our focus really has been on buttoning down on um, marcoms and technology within the middle east and asia love it so You've got a team of 30. I know you're based in Dubai. You also have the Singapore office. Yeah. Uh, and are there any others or is it Hong Singapore Kong, and Dubai? And right Hong now? Kong. Oh, and, and Hong, Hong Kong, Kong, of course. Yeah. 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 So it's been a really, um, obviously, the, the regions that, that we've worked in have all had a, a, a different COVID and have all, um, most of them have sprung. So Singapore and Dubai have uh, sprung back now as, as hubs. Um, quarantine has just ended in Hong Kong. So um, I might be able to go and see my colleagues there for the first time since 2019. Wow. But um, Hong Kong has taken some time to open up, but I think we can really see the green, green shoots of recovery now coming over there. It's been what, What's been quite fascinating, though, is that the Hong Kong, our business in Hong Kong has actually done, done pretty well over this period. But um, the guys and girls that work there just haven't been able to travel. And I think that's probably been the, the toughest thing on them is their mental health and just feeling the constraints of COVID that not many of us are living through now. Absolutely. It's interesting how different parts of the world have experienced this differently and are in different stages of uh, recovery and, and, and resurgence. Um, so what's cool, I think you are the first person I've had on the show that really specializes or is expert in Middle East and Asia. Um, what's it like recruiting in that region and, and how does it differ to say UK, Europe, you know, where you're from originally? Yeah, I think, so I've, I've been an, an expat, if it's called that, for, for, for 14 years now. Um, so moved originally, you know, having worked in recruitment or first of all, creative agencies and digital agencies. And then I worked in recruitment. I moved into recruitment just because I couldn't find a recruiter in the UK in the mid 2000s that really understood what I did in content marketing. So I thought, right, well, there must be an opportunity here to open up a recruitment business. And and then when the financial crisis happened in 2008, the, the, the founders of the recruitment business that I worked for in London were in the financial services um sector so they got smashed is probably the best way i can say it by the financial crisis and i saw that there was this place where the cranes didn't stop moving called dubai and thought that might that should be a good place to uh to go and live and work and and basically got offered a job out here over the telephone so i landed here in 2008 having never been to dubai before um not even done much reading actually which um which probably i should have done <laughs> so when the air when the doors to the airport opened and i got in it was september and still you know 40 odd degrees here i was uh, i knew it was going to be hot but i'd never felt anything like that before um but i i arrived here and it was a, it was a crazy world right it was it was people were becoming sort of at the time millionaires in six months and you were reading all you know and there were genuinely cranes everywhere and i couldn't quite get my you know you open up a bank account and the bank manager said you should borrow lots of money and invest in an apartment and of course then everything went crashing down and i thought oh my gosh what have i done if i packed up the recession and put it in my suitcase and brought it out here but after um about you know i'd say a good six to eight months of being here it was screen shoots were starting to come through and that's because abu dhabi had flicked sort of dubai a load of money and all of a sudden it's uh, you know its debts had gone and i found myself um, having sort of managed to survive doing odds and sods jobs out here, um, I found myself in a position where I felt perfectly suited to kind of set up a niche out here as in a, as a Marcoms 
uh, an advertising recruitment specialist because there just wasn't anyone here doing it. Everyone had left when the recession happened. You know, it was well reported at the time that people were dumping their cars at the airport, etc. So I, I was that. kind of like, yeah. So I was sort of last person standing. It felt like, and and actually, it served me quite well. And it's because I'd left the firm in in the UK and, and knew that there wasn't, you know, the market in the UK was still quite damaged. And I thought, well, if I stay in Dubai, at least I can get a suntan and see it out. You know, and. Um, <laughs> And it proved to be quite a shrewd move. So, so um, I stuck it out. And then in 2010, I decided to launch my own business, um, which was great because I was probably the first specialist out here. So what, you know, I think what served me really well was that sort of first mover advantage of being in Dubai, particularly after a recession when so many people had left that I had the, the guts, would you say, to, to open up. Um, it was quite hard to structure the ownership of a business then. So I had to go into a partnership with a local, which was, you know, and you hear some horror stories and you heard some okay stories. And I just, you know, I put all my chips on red and hoped that it came through. And fortunately, that partnership worked out well. Um, and then I actually spended, ended up spending most of the time in the UK because, of course, it was great being the first person to set up a niche here, but there, there wasn't really much talent here, um, particularly if it was in digital. So I, was relocating people from the UK out to the Middle East. And that's, you know, that's really how I got going. Do, when you say relocating people, do you mean to work for you in your business or you were relocating no, talent clients. to work for your clients? Yeah, good question. So what, obviously I set up myself as, a, as an expert Marcoms and, and creative recruiter in the Middle East. And it was, I, I, you know, I had loads of people interested in my services, but I didn't have much talent here. Um, right, I see. And and particularly the type of roles that I was getting briefed on were sort of non Arab non Arabic positions, but very technically, um, they wanted technical specialists within those fields or creative directors who'd worked on particular campaigns. And I could only really find those in Europe. Um, and you know, because I've worked in the industry for seven years, I was really able to leverage on my experience and contacts. LinkedIn you know, was quite handy, but it still wasn't the, 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 the power machine that it is now. So I leveraged into my contacts and I started relocating, you know, three to five people a month out here. Wow. And that's cool. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And I was, you know, we had a, we had a fantastic run of it and that's how I set up and got the business going. And my passion for the Middle East, um, you know, really sort of started from, from when I grew the business and it's, you know, it's a bit, but it, it was a crazy place to, to launch a business because, Everything was kind of raw. Everything was new. The um, you know things move either. It's very volatile. Okay, so things either go move really fast, really, and 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 you can become successful very quickly, or they can fall off a cliff just as quickly, right? Um, and you get companies that arrive and leave, and you have to really sort of be very clever about who you work with in this part of the world because sometimes professionalism can be lacking in certain individuals or getting paid can be really hard you know payment terms um people can sign a, a terms and conditions document agree to pay you in 30 days but that doesn't mean that they will pay you in 30 days and neither is right. there much protection for them to be able to do that for you for you to be able to claim your money sorry so i've got you know, a story about that i'll tell you in a few minutes but yeah i think that's one of the challenge you know getting paid is one of the challenges a lot of people face in in the middle east and <laughs> you you have to the other thing is it's a you have to be a you know it's a small pond so you 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 have to do a good job for everyone because you know if you do a good job people hear about it very quickly if you do a bad job people hear about it equally quickly and yes. i was quite fortunate in that because i've worked in the industry i was able to network in the right circles and do a good job for people so i get got referred loads of my business 
And that I think was the key to the success was that being, you know, doing a good job and being referred to the right people. Now my staff hear me say this all the time, but you know, I, I remind them that Dubai's population is that is similar to that of Sheffield, you know, so it is quite small. And even though it's glitz and glamorous, you know, you, you have to, you, you have to keep in mind that you, you have to always be business developing in this part of the world because the businesses aren't as big as they are in London. So you always yeah. need to find new clients. And if you do a good job for someone, they probably won't need to service you until, you know, until they, they grow again. Um, so you've always got to be looking for new areas to go into. And also it's the hub for the wider GCC region, you know, and that means that you get access to Qatar and Saudi. Which, What's GCC, I, Justin? So the GCC is the Gulf Corporation Council. Okay, so okay. those essentially are the countries, the oil producing countries. So you've got um, the UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Oman. Okay, got those it. Okay, are that those, that, that's those are the, the, the wealthy countries that mm -hmm. are are now investing in diversifying their economies, and that's where a lot of mm -hmm. business opportunities come from. Um, mm -hmm. And Dubai at the moment really serves as the main hub for those regions with um with saudi and qatar probably you know and, and abu dhabi um, competing with dubai now for that title interesting so what's been the biggest um thing that either shocked you or you had to adapt to in be building a successful business in that region i i mean it's it's there's so many things it's it's bringing you know also first of all it's you know, establishing yourself as a niche expert when they were, people were really only used to working with Michael Page, Robert Walters, or, you know, those guys or Hayes that were here. Um, it's then justifying your fee because, you know, people see that you're a small business, they think they can pay you peanuts. It's, it's then, it's then having to sort of define how a recruitment business less, less so now, but back in the day, it was how a recruitment business actually works you know, and, and, right. and why we get our fee and what we can bring to the table. Um, and, you know, so it's kind of educating a market that's not as mature uh, exactly. for exactly. recruiting services, big, big, big part of doing that. And then um, and then as 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 we grew, it was then um, looking to take that and, and start servicing clients in Saudi or in other parts of the, the region that were really important to those businesses as well and showing that you could do a good job for them. One of the challenges as well has been under showing that you can understand the local culture, the ways mm. of doing business, that you can respect that. Um, you know, some of the, the companies that we work for uh, are real melting pots as well because in this part of the world, um, most, most so for example, in the UAE, um, most businesses that we work with don't have UAE nationals that work for them. So they're all expats. So you'll have, a, you'll have some companies that will have 30 to 40, maybe more different nationalities working in their office. And you've got to understand how all those different cultures can work together. You know, you've got to you, you've you've got to know what corners of the world to get people from. You've got to understand where specific strengths. And uh, you know, the, the, for example, we moved a lot of Latin Americans to Dubai, and you know, and there is a, a huge Latin population within the creative sector that people wouldn't know that, right? <laughs> so yeah, no, I had you know, no idea. About yeah, that. so there's you know, there's there's understanding where you can get people from. Why would people would want to move here? So you not only need to know the culture of the Middle East, but you then yeah. because a lot of the talent that you're relocating is from other parts of the world. You need to understand that culture as well. And that was a real big difference from recruiting in the UK, 
where I was really recruiting within the M25, if I'm honest with you. And there was a, yes. an abundance of, of candidates to, to find within that. And, you know, um, if, if I found a candidate in North London, they might not want to work in South London. And whereas in, you know, if I'm relocating for Saudi, I might have to find someone in Australia or, you know, Canada, et cetera. And it's a you know, different world, different worlds. Wow. That's so cool. So I, I don't know if I told you the story. I spent about a week in Dubai, but this is years and years ago. Yeah. I was invited by, I'm not going to name the company. It was a, um, it was a French recruitment company who had set up in, in Dubai and uh, there was two partners and one of them was a big fan of mine and he like was super enthusiastic. I didn't meet, ever meet or know the other partner. They wanted me to train their sort of senior consultants and, and you know, consultants and like I delivered like a three or four day program for them. Uh, it was so interesting. Like just it felt I'd never been anywhere in the Middle East before and it felt completely alien to me, just like uh, um, even just sort of navigating the nuance of how to interact with people, and and you know, I, I found that really interesting, but but quite difficult. Um, and the sessions went well, but unfortunately, then immediately after, almost like the week after I left and came back to uh, Scotland, the partner split up, and the guy who was left didn't want to pay me. Yeah. And uh, I had this whole, cause he was like, as far as he was concerned, they didn't need training and he had never, you know, a agreed to the training and so on. But anyway, I just yeah. had to harass him until he relented, but. Oh, did he eventually relent? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But that's... I mean, th there's nothing I really could have done. Like if, if he had decided to not to pay me, then I'm in another country. There's not really. It's tough, you it's know, tough. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the, the you know, one of the challenges that the region has had sometimes in attracting business is is because of this fear of, fear of not being paid. Now, I'm I'm delighted to say that actually, um, coming out of COVID, it's it, I, I really think you know if it's possible to say that that the the region, particularly Dubai, had a good COVID and that a lot of businesses have been attracted here. They were very smart. You know, mm -hmm. I was living in Singapore uh, and Asia, which was which was much of a you know in lockdown mode then, and the middle uh, Dubai especially uh, sort of went into open up mode they saw a real opportunity in um, in opening their up their economy as quickly as possible so I think by June or July 2020 they were they were announcing they were open for business tourists were coming here you know and they, they they were they were screened and checked very carefully but what they also did was they opened up visas that invited people to work here so they had a remote working visa which a lot of people mm. took advantage of and oh, came cool. here and actually went you know what it's actually quite a nice, nice, you know, it's not, it's not steaming hot as it, as I thought it always would be that actually in the winter months, it's really pleasant. And a lot of people stayed, I think a lot of people stayed in Airbnbs and extended that. And so when I came back here, um, after Singapore last year, I was just quite surprised by just how full Dubai was. Now, believe it or not, we couldn't find a villa. Now, if I remember what I told you at the beginning of this story, when I moved out here, that there was, this was the land of, you know, where a quarter of the world's cranes were. So the yeah. fact that we couldn't find a villa tells you how wow. full Dubai, you know, was. <laughs> it was just bonkers, really. Um, but there we go. Half of the, the story of our business isn't just the Middle East, but it's, it's Asia as well. If you're a recruitment business owner, you might be feeling the pressure to invest in new technology. But how do you invest in technology that is proven to win higher paying clients? Otherwise, overall, you're just making a financial loss. 
Our trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. They provide recruiters with an online delivery platform for the candidate shortlist. So instead of sending over CVs or resumes, you can send your clients an online profile that includes video, key competency questionnaires, and behavioral assessments. It looks more professional than a CV or a PDF, plus it helps the client make a more informed decision about who to call to interview. But that's not all. iIntro also provides recruitment business owners with coaching for their team, not just to help them use the software, but to help them use it to win more retained business. Their comprehensive training program is specifically designed to help recruiters at all levels of experience develop a retained recruitment service. In fact, many of the hundreds of recruitment businesses they've worked with win a brand new retained client after only a few weeks of getting started. To see iIntro in action, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to book a free demonstration. There's no obligation, plus you'll also be helping to support this podcast. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Because you've got offices in different countries and culturally completely different, like how uh, have you made that work? Yeah, so actually, if you if you look at back, so in um, we we set up Asia, our Asia business in 2016, and at the time, if you were um, looking at where expats went, it was it was the sort of tr- competition between uh, the main competition that we were finding was Dubai, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So we always always had you know Asia in our mind because we were talking to talent, and if the talent was considering to relocate, they had opportunities in in either Singapore or Hong Kong as well. That's where they were open to work. So we were we thought right, if we were really good at bringing people into Dubai, why can't we try and be really good at bringing people into Hong Kong? And then um, I found um, a, a fantastic person to work with called Adam, who's now my business partner and a shareholder in our firm. Um, and he wanted to go and move to Hong Kong and set up our Asia business. So um, he came and stayed with us in, in Dubai for a month in uh, in August, I remember it was. And he, he'd never felt heat like it. I don't think he wondered <laughs> what, what, he'd, you know, what he'd landed in. But uh, he then moved to Hong Kong and leveraged off all our relationships that we had in the Middle East and some of his own that he had. And he built this really um, fantastic business that was um, that was a replica of what we were doing in the Middle East over in Hong Kong. And um, and it was just quite different. There were similarities and differences. So s- similarities in the sense that you know you were they were it was a regional hub. Hong, so we were recruiting. Although we were based in Hong Kong, we were servicing about forty percent of our clients in Southeast Asia. So that hub element, the way Dubai serves as the hub for the MENA region, and and Hong Kong or Singapore serves as the hub for the Asia Pacific region. We we really were able to help businesses. And, um, find talent because we really understood how that operation worked if they needed to relocate talent we could get our hands on just any just about anyone from anywhere because of our middle east experience but what we really saw as a difference was that actually there was a demand for localized talent and you know both singapore and hong kong really wanted us to to find local talent so that was a big difference in our business from the middle east that we really built and have built and continue to build a really strong localized database as well and and actually fast forward to today and that's actually what's made our businesses quite very successful in asia is that we've got really good localized talent because what covid did in hong kong because of the lockdowns and the exodus of expat talent and in singapore with the you know the government essentially getting elected on a mandate to 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 make more jobs for singaporeans you had to you know in order to 
to get an expat ticket, if you want to call it that, for a visa, you have to show that you employ lots of locals. We had to really only service the local market. And that today is, a, I think, a big difference between our Middle East and Asia business is that um, in, in still in, in the Middle East, it's about 50-50 expat to local talent that we get. Interesting. Whereas in yeah. Asia, it's um, it's much less than that. The, the expat movement that we get there is probably about 15%. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Justin, I wanted to ask you, like, are most of your clients multinationals or are they like UAE companies or Hong Kong companies? Like what, um, what's the mix there? Yeah. So um, our our clients are made of, there's four different groups of our clients from um, an industry perspective. We've got agencies, be those um, advertising, creative PR agencies, consultancies, be those management consultancies or um, smaller niche advisory firms. Um, corporates, they, they could be multinational businesses or big local family holding groups in, in the various different regions. Um, and, the, and the last one is technology brands, be those startups or established brands. And those, th- those four groups are really are where our main, are our, our main client base. And, and I would say probably the, the corporates, you've got real, you know, in the Middle East, the, the, the family holding groups are very powerful. But likewise, in Asia, it's exactly the same, actually. There's a very there's a big similarity there that you've got a lot of wealth that's maintained within certain families. And they have these huge, diverse portfolios where you find they've got investments into energy, investments into property, investments into, gosh, just about anything. And you can work with one of those niches as well. So, um, our, you know, our, I think it's quite broad now, our client mix of, of local and international businesses. I think as the market probably gets a bit tighter um, next year we're probably going to be more localized using working with more localized brands as opposed to international because what I find in the emerging world is you get a lot of um, real you know a lot of the big international firms do a reorg of talent and bring out um, then move people internally to markets that are still doing well and I certainly expect the Middle East and Asia to be quite resilient moving forward I mean you know if you look at energy prices um, and you look at the way that the markets are behaving in Southeast Asia and and with Hong Kong opening up and hopefully China as well I think they're going to be you know I think we're going to be perhaps suffer less from the effects of inflation that other parts of the world are suffering from right now that's not to say if Mr Putin doesn't do a few silly things but um, you know I think I think we feel quite positive about where things are going it's interesting because I suppose Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, especially correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, um, whereas higher energy prices have an adverse effect on most of the world, uh, I guess in the Middle East, it might actually have a positive effect in terms of driving growth. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, if you, it's, it's what publicized now. If you have a look at, you know, I think Aramco announced like 90% profits. That's the Saudi Arabia, you know, the, the, the basically the, the company that controls all the oil that comes out of Saudi Arabia. But all the, the Middle East economies right now have managed to restore their um, coffers and are quite buffered up, you know. Um, I think that the, the fact that energy prices have been quite high serves them really well and allows them to spend on diversification projects, which is what we are working on a lot of those right now. You know, that investment into technology, um, building new cities, these huge giga projects, these big announcements, that's serving the Middle East region, you know, I- incredibly well. And, and, and actually, we're, we're very busy on the back of it. Likewise, you've also got this interesting um, 
episode where we've had an influx of Russians say come to Dubai as well with, with what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine. And it's similarly in, in, in Singapore, actually, you've had a, a real influx of people coming from Hong Kong and China who have entered, you know, very wealthy people who've moved or set up family offices or set up um, businesses in, in, in Singapore, which is deemed a, a real safe haven as well. And that, has, that in essence, has flooded that market with a lot of liquidity as well. So it's interesting that where two of our offices are, um, say, Singapore and Dubai, they're deemed, I would seem, and what I've seen over the years is, is, is safe havens, you know? So when the world's in perhaps a bit of a pickle or when trouble, trouble is seen on the horizon, they actually tend to do quite well and they reverse it. So, um, and that's, that's, you know, that's a role that Hong Kong used to play as a, as a gateway into China. I think it's quite hard to see where that's going to go now. I do think it will spring back quite a bit when China opens up, actually, and it will still genuinely be that um, gateway to China, albeit in a different guise to how it used to be before. Um, but I think those, particularly Singapore and Dubai right now, we're seeing, um, we're seeing them do quite well um, when, when perhaps other parts of the world are a little bit nervous. Interesting, interesting. Justin, I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned Adam and how he's become a partner in the business and so on. Yeah. And this, of course, expanding internationally, you can only be in one place at a time. And yeah. like you could fly, you know, spend all your time flying around, you know, uh, restrictions allowing to different countries. Obviously, Hong Kong has been um, out of bounds for that. But, um, but th alternatively, you need strong local leadership trust someone who you completely trust and who shares the same values and is going to be the representative of your culture and your ethos in that location. Um, and that's very difficult to, to, to find. A lot of companies that I've seen who've tried to expand and failed, it's because they didn't get that part right. And um, so how, how did you... Um, a, find Adam, did you know him previously? And B, how did you make sure that he was going, that you had this shared yeah. like vision of yeah. how, the, how things should run? Well, it, the honest answer is, um, it, you know, I found Adam by, through a referral um, okay. and I actually reached out to, so, so to get to success, you have to go through a lot of failures. I know it sounds quite cliche, but it's true, right? Yeah. Um, you have to kiss a few frogs as well. So um, I actually... In a weird way, I, I reached out to Adam to open up a London business that I was looking to do back in the day. Okay, so my, okay. you know, I think uh, uh, in 2016, I was, I was, uh, I think I thought I was James Khan, you know, in, 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 in expansion <laughs> mode, or, uh, who knows, right? So I was planning on opening up London and Hong Kong at the same time, and I approached Adam as he was referred to me, and Adam said, actually, no, I want to go to Asia. And I sort of went, oh, well, that's interesting because Asia's, you know, Asia's on my agenda as well. And actually, and I ended up immediately talking to Adam about um, Hong Kong. And, um, and that we opened up in London as well. And that didn't go very well. I closed that after a year. But Hong Kong was doing great. And that's because Adam, you know, I, I'd luck would have it. And after sort of five interviews and staying with us in, in um, you know, in Dubai, I really saw that we had a lot in common. And that we were, we have... The, serious drive to be successful you know and i don't want to that sounds a bit corny but we you know i i met a partner in adam that i knew he worked as hard as me that he, we shared the same values that we wanted to 
do a good job. We wanted to, we were all about quality over quantity. We were all about being experts in our field. And Adam, whereas I come from a, you know, a, a, a content marketing and creative background, Adam comes from a design background. So shall we, we kind of shared that, that, the fact that we both worked in industry as well. So there was a lot of similarities and, and that's, you know, that's how it's worked so well to date is that we laugh together, we cry together, you know, and I think we're completely honest with each other. And, and that's, that's enabled us to become very successful in Asia as well. Um, now, the challenge that Adam's faced over the past, um, say, two and a half years with the Asia Pacific business is that um, just but you may recall just before COVID happened that Hong Kong, the riots started in Hong Kong. I yeah, mean, it seems, politically. Seems like a very, very distant memory now. But before COVID, we, we already yeah. had the riots on the streets uh, that we were, you know, so it was becoming, uh, uh, you know, a, a bit, a bit of a, a tough place to recruit for. Where if you particularly looking to bring expat talent in, so we really, um, that's why, we, and, and we opened up Singapore because we were saw we had forty percent of our revenue from Hong coming out of Southeast Asia, um, but we were doing it unmanned first of all. Then we opened up a license uh. there, and then as when the riot started, that's when we started to really staff up there. When I say really staff up, we put about four or five people there, and and. Then obviously COVID came down and I was one of those four or five people in Singapore, by the way. So I, myself, my wife and, and, and two kids at the time, we moved there to, to grow that. And then COVID happened. And of course, we all got shut off. The idea was that I was going to be coming backwards and forwards to Dubai and helping, you know, softly, softly leave, uh, leave Dubai for Singapore. And Adam would be come flying over from Hong Kong to Singapore a lot to help us grow that. And as it happened, <laughs> we all got marooned. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and, crazy. and that, yeah, and I ended up, um, you know, I hadn't been in Singapore long enough to really um, build out the business as I as I hoped to do there, um, and I ended up being called called into Dubai work a lot. So I was doing a lot of remote work for Dubai from Singapore, and Adam was doing a lot of Singapore work remote from Hong Kong. So that's how we eventually, you know, over time, it, it I made sense. It made sense for me to move back to Dubai. And to focus on building that, and for Adam to actually what we what we built in Hong Kong is now a business that yes it serves Hong Kong, but also about six you know fifty to sixty percent of our revenue given given the month that we're talking about comes from Southeast Asia. So we actually have more of a remote business right now in oh, Hong wow. Kong that, that serves Southeast Asia, and that's how we managed to grow through COVID. Is that we pivoted i hate to use that word everyone seems to use it but we pivoted <laughs> out of hong kong being a china reliant business china hong kong reliant business and more into it being a japan korea southeast asia and elements of hong kong as well business to the point that now we're going back to the plan of getting people on the ground into into singapore so our next hire will be um hires shall i say will be you know, two between two and four people that we'll put into Singapore, and they will be people that are familiar and local with the market there, and 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 hopefully a senior person that's that is Singaporean or or has lived in Singapore for a long time, because we've seen the importance of, you know, being having a local person on the ground there, and I think that the success and failure that we've had over since 2018 there has has really taught us what we need to get in place to make it work there now. Uh, and again, Singapore is a small place. You know, it serves it serves the whole region, but don't forget it's the size of the Isle of Wight. Absolutely, yeah. When you put it like that, yeah, um, it is a small place. Why do you think the London office 
didn't work out, Justin? So it goes back to knowing what you know really well, right? And I, I'd left, as I said to you at the beginning of this, I'd left London in 2008 and I went back to London from Dubai in 2016. And actually, we were experts with working with our clients in the Middle East and had just started in Asia, but we, we weren't experts in London. We didn't have, the, you know, the, we, yes, we had clients that had offices there, but those, those, those clients in London had well-established PSLs that they were working with who, and working with companies who had very well-known, um, you know, groups of, of candidates. They had well-known networks, and we, 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 we didn't have that. I, I hired, I tried, you know, I relocated. I think when you try and open up an international office, and that's probably something important to say, I think you want to get a mixture of, of culture from your business, but also with knowledge of the local market. Okay, so mm. we, I did send someone from Dubai over to, to London to work with someone that was in the London market, which I thought looked a great pairing, but actually they didn't really get on. And, um, <laughs> and on top of that, the person that I hired in London just wasn't as good as I thought they were going to be. And that meant that the person in Dubai that I'd sent over couldn't really offer that much because they didn't have a network. So it just didn't work out, you know, and, and it was... You know, it was it was turning into an expensive failure, and I think you've got to have the the guts to go. You know what? This isn't working. Let's focus on where, what we're really good at, and and it you know it goes back to being good at being in the Middle East and Asia. How wh- how long and like when do you call that, Justin? Because that's a tough call. Like you could think. We just need to be more persistent, give it longer. You know, we've cracked all these other markets. There's no reason we couldn't also be successful in London, right? And, yeah. you know, and think, okay, well, we, ha- we had the wrong person or the wrong mix of people. We'll make some changes and keep going. How do you decide, you know what? Let's cut our losses there and refocus our resources and our time and energy in the markets that, you know, we think we can be most successful in. I think you've, you've got to be honest with yourself. And that's the key thing in, in being, a, you know, I was, if you think about where I was geographically in Dubai, then I had a business in London, I had the business in Dubai and I had the business in Hong Kong. When would I sleep? You know, it was all, it was, I think <laughs> the other thing as well is, you know, there's only so much you as one individual can do. And it was start, you know, it was quite obvious that the, the, other parts of the business were starting to suffer because my eyes were getting distracted into into the you know, London was going to need a lot of time and effort from me yeah. and from finding the right person from finding. And, and I just asked myself that question, is it worth putting, you know, really putting all that time and att- to taking me away from the core, which at the time was Dubai to focus really hard onto London, which was, which was, I, I didn't really know how to fix because I'd been out the market for so long, or is it yeah. better for me to focus on the core that's, that makes us our money? And to go with help Adam, you know, in, in a bit that's really got lots of opportunities and it's quite clearly very similar. You know, there's a lot of similarity, more similarity with Dubai and Hong Kong than there was with London. Is it, is okay, it, am I better served putting time into that? And the answer was yes, when you framed it up like that. And I also, you know, and I advise any business owner to do this. I have people, mentors or people that I trust and rely on, you know, in business who've been successful in business. And you just put your hand in the air and you go, you know what, I need help with this. And what would you do? And, and, I, and I, I gave my opinion. I, mean, I'm, I went to them with what I thought was right. And nine times out of 10, and that was, I think I should shut London. And they all agreed with me. And that really sort of cemented it as well. 
Interesting. That's that is really interesting, Justin. How you you came to that decision. Did you know that fewer than 1% of recruitment business owners ever achieve an exit? The good news is that it's absolutely achievable if you know how. That know-how and proven track record is exactly what Recruitment Entrepreneur provides. They're the number one investor in recruitment startups and scale-ups globally. James Kahn and his team have done this many times before. In fact, they've backed 45 businesses already and they're only just getting started. Based in London, they've now launched in the USA and many other countries around the world. They're looking to partner with ambitious recruiters who want to start, scale, and sell their recruitment business. They provide the funding, mentoring, advice, and support you need to become one of the top 1% who successfully exit their recruitment business. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, Go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC as in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors and be sure to tell them you were referred by Mark Whitby and the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. Tell me, like, do you have a formula for deciding when to open a new office versus when to just keep hiring more people in an existing uh, location, like why open uh, a new, like why open a new region instead yeah. of just double down on Dubai or, or or Hong Kong? I do now. I do now. I, I you know, and that is because I've got grey hair and twelve years of experience, right? I think if you'd have asked me that question in in twenty sixteen, it was it was a lot more gut feel, and that's unsurprisingly yeah. why some things went well and some things didn't yeah uh, I, I got lucky with the things that went well and not so with the things that didn't and now it's there's a, a and particularly with covid um you know there, there's even less of a reason something some would say to open up a physical office in, in a location yeah. i think for us it comes down to a percentage of revenue that comes out of an area um mm -hmm. the fact that we've got clients that we can take into a certain into a certain region and and if we really think there's going to be something that we can add value from having those the people on the ground, I think in the in in our part in the parts of the world that we do business in, where cultural sensitivities are, are of a great importance, and actually in the Arabic world, FaceTime is incredibly important, and actually in, right. in Asia Pacific it, it is as well. Um, it, it does make sense, but we'll take our time. What we'll, what we do is we build a hub within within our existing office. That then, when that gets to a certain point where we think, well, it'll, it'll, um, we'll get value from having boots on the ground. That's when we'll look to open it up. So, for um, for Singapore, we we were doing forty percent of our revenue in from Hong Kong in Singapore. That in itself was justifiable. I felt to have a license there, and 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 actually having that license there then enabled us to pitch for work that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to do had we were serving it remote. So government contracts, et cetera, you need, to have, um, you need to have boots on the ground. But also being able to see people and that personal side really sort of added value to what we were doing remote. Um, our, our, our next offices that we will open will probably be the end of next year if, if all goes to plan. And they would be in the Middle East would be in Riyadh because um, mm -hmm. Saudi is going through an enormous amount of change and spending you know, quite a significant amount on that. And there's a big opportunity there. And in Asia, it will be Japan. 
because that in itself is a very localized market. It's a very interesting market that, you know, you just need to look at the amount of people on LinkedIn in Japan. It's not a lot. Um, so actually having um, understanding of local cultural understanding and, and, and having people on the ground who speak Japanese, who are familiar yes. with the market and understand the, the cultural sensitivities there, that will serve and add to uh, and have great value. But we'll start building that from Hong Kong probably. And then, right. and then once we've got a runway, we'll then put people over there. And, and again, you know, I did this, an interesting exercise with our Dubai and uh, Hong Kong business recently where I looked at where the revenue was coming from and why, you know, why things were going well. Um, and, and, and if there was, you know, in, in Dubai, so many things came to Saudi, you know, like even the clients that we were doing business with who were agencies or consultancies, we were actually, even though the Dubai business was giving us the, 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 the vacancy to work on, it was actually to service, if you looked at it deeper, to service Saudi Arabia business. So in fact, was that a Dubai hire? Or was that a Saudi hire we were making for that mm. client? So we've looked at it granular in that sense. And it's the same in Hong Kong. That's how I know that we've been at, you know, why we, perhaps we haven't suffered from the lockdowns that, that Hong Kong and China have suffered from so much is because we've been able to use Hong Kong as a springboard to go into other markets. Interesting. That's so cool. We have a surprising following in Japan for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I still like just last week, I, uh, I had a, um, a, a connection request. Let me just give him a, a shout out here if I can quickly find it. No, I don't, I don't see it. I've been buried in too many others, but, yeah. uh, yeah, we've, we've got, um, a small, but loyal, uh, listener base in, uh, in Japan. It's a fascinating market. And, um, uh, you know, I think, have you had someone from Japan on your podcast before? Yeah. We, yeah. Twice we've had, yes. uh, come. So you know about oh, the rates there. Suguru Narita. So hopefully he'll hear his name and, and get a kick out of that. So, Hey, Suguru, thank you for, following the resilient recruiter podcast there you go there you go that, i think that's actually one important thing i would say about the middle east you know, so in, in the middle east it's a very transactional market actually it's quite hard you know people come here you have to really negotiate very hard on your rates people want a lot of people want something for nothing and people will be quite surprised even though they think it's the land of gold-plated rolls royces actually you know people really will try and hit you for 10, 12%, sometimes 8%. You know, you've got to fight really hard to get your rates up. In Asia, they're much more um, respectful of um, the, the recruitment industry and, and, yes. and, you can, uh, and the rates that, that we charge. And you can actually get, you know, in somewhere like Japan, we just talked about, you know, rates can go up to 40% for a hire, yes. you know. Yes. Um, and I would say it's pretty standard to get 25% in, in, in Asia. And, and people don't really um, blink to, to that to that yeah. percentile but in in dubai you and, and and saudi and you know qatar especially you really have to fight um and that's that's one of the interesting things i would say to anyone considering going into that market yeah i've been told by multiple people 35 percent in japan is just the norm yeah, yeah. and in certain yeah. for rare skills or situations then you can get more than that it's old school headhunting mark you know it's it's you've yeah. got your rolodex and you've got to try and find the right people for the job and it, people are you know people stay in careers a lot longer than they do in other parts of the world yes. there. so you moving them takes a lot yeah i know that makes that makes a lot of sense justin something you've been really successful at is uh, being a billing manager, because I know you've been a big biller yourself. You've done like, you know, uh, you've had years where you've done a million in personal billings. Um, 
but you've simultaneously grown a team and that's really challenging to pull off. We have a program for companies who want to scale called Apex and it's for seven figure firms that want to uh, get to eight figures and build a business ultimately that runs without them that they could potentially exit. Um, but getting from like, let's say that million to three to five million and building yeah. from uh, a handful of people to a larger team, it's brutal. Like, and and trying to, because you, you're really wearing three, you're re- doing three jobs at once. You're running your own desk with your own clients and, and making placements. That's a full-time job. You're also hire, like recruiting, hiring, training uh, other people. That could be a full-time job. And then you're also running the overall company. You know, you've got all this stuff you've talked about, like with expansion plans, deciding, making these decisions. You have to pay your taxes. You have to think about marketing, your website, your social media. You know, that could be a full-time business, almost the, the business management. How have you been able to pull that off? What's, what are some of the keys? Yeah, I think it's... so. I don't think if we're going to continue to grow, um, myself and Adam are going to continue to play uh, such a hands-on billing role. I think it's quite obvious now that we're probably reaching our threshold there with the size the business is at. Um, but the, the key to, to being able to do that is, first of all, we I think one thing we did um, at the start of COVID is we brought on a, a non-exec director um, to advise us on exactly how we could do that. So we, we have um, monthly catch-ups um, with Justin Pearson, who's our non-exec director, um, that and that's really sort of helped us um, take some of the load or the burden off, off our shoulders and, and look to push it to um, the, the 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 employees that we've got and who um, and, and to give them established accounts to 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 run with. And we're doing more of that now. Um, the other thing is we've got a really good operations team. So uh, I've got you know a CFO, two um, two operations managers. We've we've also um, Outsourcer, we've got um, our CFO has also got um, spends two weeks of the month in Chennai in India and two weeks with us in Dubai, um, and we're st- we're building out an outsourcing um, accounting and delivery team in Chennai, um, and what we've also managed to do is to um, plug in an outsourced delivery team in, and we've actually got people in Sri Lanka and Manila as well that have really supported me and enabled me to to deliver on the recruitment that I'm working on whilst being quite hands-on in the uh, in, in the managerial aspect of the business as well. And that's a system that we started to bring into employees now. So um, one of our lead guys in Dubai, Charlie, he's now got um, a lady called Anne that works closely with him. Um, and it's like having two people and it's doubled his, his capacity. And we've also then just given him someone in India who does all his CRM work for him as well. So all the, the, the data inputs and bullhorns, job adders, et cetera, we get that handled by someone else now so we and that's a system that, that i trialed with myself and that worked well so it enabled freed up my space to be able to to, to run the business and and that's what i think would would be that you know if someone's stretched i would see see what you can out see what you can outsource Definitely. and delegate to other people that's really helped but we've to give you a sort of an idea um Adam and I were, were contributing 60, 70% of revenue um, at one point. And then we've, what we've done is we've taken that back as we've grown now to sort of 35 and 40%. And, and we're, we're pushing that back even more. So most of the stuff that I do now is, is shared with individuals. Um, so the clients still like to, to, to see me. 
but I'm actually pushing quite a bit of the work down to the individuals. And Adam's doing exactly the same in Asia. And that's, that's enabled, you know, we are taking ourselves off that billing role over time, if you will. It's not been an immediate, you know, um, pull the ripcord and off we go. It's been a gradual process. Uh, I think yes. that's, that's worked quite well for us. So phase one was um, delegating or uh, offshoring the sort of sourcing part of the yes. Yes. Uh, of the of the piece, but you were still account managing the process, you know, developing the client relationships and so on. Yes. And then as you've brought more team members into the business, you've been able to uh, delegate more of the uh, actual account you know, account management part. Yes. Uh, and you're still overseeing that, but taking the lead in, you know, business development and then developing yes. a team. Yes. I think, to be honest with you, it was, you know, you and I were working together in the early stages of, of COVID, right? And I saw yeah. that you had, um, you know, staff members around the world and Rachel was in the Philippines, et cetera. So it took, yeah. took some inspiration from from you and other people I was talking to and, and realized that, you know, if I was to, to really focus down on growing the business um, and, and getting us out of COVID, that I couldn't do everything. You couldn't try and do everything all on my own. And Definitely. hire, you know, I, I lucky I hired some really good people to work for our business, as did Adam. And we also outsourced um, elements of what we were doing as well. And that, re you know, that the outsourcing element opened our eyes to possibilities, if I'm honest with you now, to yes. the point that I'm using it as a way of, you know, if you're, someone like Charlie, for example, and um, you know, you've got uh, a delivery person plugged into to your work and you've got someone doing your handling your admin and, and, and CRM, that really frees you up to do the recruiting, you know, the bit that yeah. you enjoy, the sales. And, and that's a real um, reason to work for our business as well. And that's a real competitive advantage that I feel that we can bring is that, you know, you can come and join us and really focus on doing what you're really good at. You know, and most sales people I meet really like sales and don't like admin. Right? Yeah, so, no, totally. That's right. So we, we can take that away from. Them. So that's, you know, that's, that's, um, that's probably uh, the reason we were able to do it, actually, Mark. And I haven't really, you know, your question really opened my, made me think about that. And I think that's, that, that's one of the main reasons why. Totally. So I guess bottom line, it's a gradual process. And, yes. um, but it's always this chicken and egg thing of like, at what point do you bring on? Do you build out that infrastructure? Hire the operations folks? Have an actual like CFO uh, or or you know finance director? You know, it, how did you phase that in over time? Rather than being sort of an entrepreneurial business yeah. where you're doing pretty much everything, to you actually have people yeah. in place to to you've got that structure. Well, I, you know, I've had the business for for, for twelve years, and, and actually bringing in good ops people. Was, was something I did early early on in, in okay. back in the day because having a, a, again it goes back to your question about what's it like doing business in this part of the world. It was those days. It was very paper heavy. It was there was a lot of red tape to navigate. So you really yeah. needed an ops and finance person to help you navigate some of that red tape and work with your local partner. And and I saw really saw you know I'd never had I haven't had to deal with that for years. So. Um, having, I, I saw the value of having a solid operations team very quickly, and and same in Hong Kong, which is still a very paper-driven market, and and Singapore to a degree. So ops people have been key to our success, and Adam and I have, you know, we've been able to delegate that from from an early, 
you know, from the early days of the business. And, and actually they were so vital during COVID as well because we always knew where we were. We always, you know, if I wanted a reality check, because you do, a lot of people have got anxiety about what's around the corner next year and, and during COVID. And what I needed was a re constant reminder and reality check and having a good CFO always gave you that. You knew the world wasn't going to end. You knew, you knew where you were financially. You knew how the business was placed. You knew what the cash was in the bank. You knew the situation. And it was, you know, it was having that reassurance was key to our success and growth coming out of COVID. Really interesting. So you said you had the you brought that operations team online pretty early days. Like, how headcount wise? At what point? Well, it, was it a revenue or was it a headcount? What was the trigger to say? Do you know what we need to, some operational support now? Yeah. If it, so, it was about our sixth hire was the first operations person okay. we brought on. But actually, I had an accountant from day one. Right. Of course. So yeah. I brought. Um, and then that accountant, I was sort of leaning on heavily. And then I brought in uh, so Centil, our CFO. He was about employee number seven or eight. So I've actually brought them on quite quickly. And it was as we were starting, we were probably on seven figures, just as we were hit seven figures. And it was, you know, the, it was becoming too much for the accountant and, yes. and, and, and hiring people and all the red tape that was involved within that. It was, yes. it was just too much for me to handle. So um so that's that's why i brought that put that individual on very quickly and i knew you know i think you have to be honest with yourself and what you're what you're good at and what you're not right and totally. uh, as, as my school reports always showed i was you know I, I, admin was never my strong point <laughs> <laughs> um so it was about when you're at the threshold of seven figures and you're you think it was your about your sixth hire was i think it was when we were on yeah we were we were in seven figure world but we were we were yeah. i was you know i was uh, we were looking to grow and i knew that yeah. the only way we could grow is if we freed up some capacity and yeah. you know i was thinking about future proofing us then and also i had in mind that i wanted to go into another market as well and i needed research and intel on those markets what the cost would be, you know, how you get your business license, et cetera. It's incredibly time consuming that and you need yes. a good operations person to do it. And you need, you know, I think it's probably on average cost us six figures, you know, a hundred to 150,000 just to open up an office, just in, just in getting, that's the administration aspect, let alone the hiring. Cause you have to prove you've got money in the bank. You have to go through all, pay all for the various stamps and, that you need and the various paperwork, et cetera. And that, you know, I think you also have to show that you've got a track record of being a successful business in your other country. So there's lots of hoops you need to jump through administrative wise. And I knew I needed people on, you know, with me to do that. Yeah. That would not be my forte <laughs> for sure. Um, so when you brought Santil on board, was he a CFO straight away or has he grown into that role as the company is? Well, it, yeah, he was our finance director and it's grown yeah. into to CFO. Yeah. And he was working sort of initially part time. So 50% with us, 50% with an advertising company and then mm -hmm. moved on full time to us. So cool. Um, and that's, you know, and, and I, I've also in my period of, of running businesses, I had a, a learning and development business that I, you know, helped um, that I put money into and, and exited and he was involved in that as well. Cool. That's amazing, Justin. So a lot of people like there's varying opinions and projections about what's going to happen in 2023 um you know and and to if to what extent things are going to slow down it's very strange because um it's still a very tight uh talent market and lots of companies still um hiring like crazy 
what are you predicting? Um, to be, you know, for, for me, it really is key that I think people, I mean, there's, there's kind of like four tips I would share on that, right? And, and I would say, first of all, do not um, pay attention to any macroeconomic news because there's plenty of bad news out there that you can sort of be drawn into and focus on. You know, uh, I think just focus on your situation and that's the best way you can get through it. Um, if you're a business owner, have regular meetings with your CFO and, and make sure that you understand what your financial situation is. Do a worst case scenario exercise. You know, that's definitely something that I would do. And, and don't panic. Just take a moment to think to yourself about how you would get through this situation. And, and for many people, just remember that you got through COVID. It wasn't that long ago. And, you know, that's, that's as bad as everyone thought it could get. And we all came out of it the other side. And in our areas, fortunately, we're not seeing any change in the job flow at all. So um, long may that continue. And I think, you know, being a specific skill sets and having good talent is still going to be in high demand. They're seeing no, no slowdown within that as well, particularly within our you know, sectors where digital plays such a huge part. But digital skills just seem to be in heavy demand more and more. 100%. Those four tips are priceless, Justin. And from someone uh, who's been through three downturns already and, you know, and you've, you've survived and continued to grow, that's really agree 100%. Like, first and foremost, do not panic. Uh, that's, you know, when you don't make good decisions is Absolutely. when you go into panic mode. You've got this. Like, I think that's the what I'm telling all my clients who are asking about, like, what's, you know, what changes should we make is you've got this. Like, yeah you're uh as long as you're paying attention as you say like stay close to your finances focus on what you're great at and um you know you're 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 going to get through this um, absolutely agree agree awesome well listen i've really enjoyed uh, reconnecting with you justin thanks for doing the next uh chapter um say hi to helen for me i will and uh yeah like uh let's do this Again, but not wait two years because absolutely you guys are, are are exploding, and I'm I want to stay closer to what's what uh, what you guys are doing. So uh, let's talk again soon. Thanks, Mark. Would love to. Cheers. Really appreciate. Thanks, it. Justin. Take care. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question: Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview, recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence, they could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.